Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleveland with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, August 5th. Today, the fight's happening throughout the country on how to open schools safely. Our number one priority has to always be our children, for they are our future. In Florida, some schools are standing up to Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. Late last week, the governor signed an executive order banning schools from requiring kids to wear masks. This week, Broward County is one of four districts in the state saying that they will keep or issue new mask mandates. And this is despite the fact that the governor has threatened to withhold their funding. Broward County School Board Chair Rosalind Osgood talked this week about why they feel the mask mandate is important. And in this video, she's standing in front of a podium, masked, speaking calmly, and in this very understated way, defying DeSantis. So we must continue to use the tools that we have masks, face shields, washing our hands, and social distancing to keep us all safe and to keep us all alive. Look, if a parent really feels that this is something that's important for their kid, we're not stopping that. They absolutely have every right to equip their student with whatever types of masks that they want um, and have them go to school if they believe that that's a protection that's important for, for, their, for their children. But it's certainly not fair to force parents who don't believe the masks are good for their kids to force them to have to send their kids a mask. So this way... Parents are able to this executive order is in pretty direct conflict with what the CDC is recommending, that to prevent the spread of COVID in schools, kids should be wearing masks indoors, especially in classrooms where they can't be physically distanced, and especially because kids under 12 are not yet eligible to get vaccinated. But DeSantis says that he doesn't think the masks are that effective and that kids don't like wearing them. It really shows a callous disregard for the physical, emotional, and academic well-being of our children. Uh, They need to be put first. This week, Florida has reported record high COVID hospitalizations, and there is a very real threat that the Delta variant will disrupt kids' educations for the third straight school year. And this fight isn't just playing out in Florida. Republican governors in Texas and Iowa have signed bills prohibiting mask requirements. And even in school districts where masks are being required, there are other big questions, like in D.C., where education reporter Perry Stein has been looking into the challenges that schools are facing when they try to make up for all that lost time. And there was this expectation that, you know, across the country, that once schools would reopen, 
things could start going back to normal. But what we found reporting at this school in Southeast DC is that it's not as simple as just reopening schools. Kids' educations won't just go back to normal because a building is open. Earlier this year, she spent time in one school, Ketchum Elementary, as they welcome students back in person after a year of virtual learning. And what Perry found was that for kids transitioning to being back in the classroom, it's not like flipping a switch. Ketchum is a neighborhood uh, school in southeast D.C. That's a low-income swath of D.C., So if you live in the Anacostia neighborhood or in this part of the Anacostia neighborhood, this is your home school. But in D.C., there's a lottery system in many different charter schools, including one just a block away. But the people who go to Ketchum, a lot of them chose this school because they have this star principal. And it's a real community school where the families know each other. There's lots of services that this school provides. I mean, they do provide meals, three meals a day, actually, to kids. They're part of a supper club that they can take meals home for them for dinner. One of the third grade teachers started a nonprofit to bring barbers into the school. So all the boys there get regular haircuts at the school for free. There's a nursery at the school that basically kids can start going to catch them at 10 weeks old and they can stay there through fifth grade. There's a food pantry so families can go there and get food to take home, produce to take home. There's washing machines on campus. Families can use it if they want for their own laundry. And then there's staff at the school that are washing kids' uniforms. I mean, the idea is that they want every kid to walk in there feeling good about themselves. So for a lot of D.C. families, Ketchum Elementary was more than just a school. I mean, this is a true community school and the physical space played a large part in creating that community. Without that physical space, we saw that community start to fray. The teachers did, the parents did, I did just by being there. Even the fenced in Ketchum school grounds, parents told me that made them feel safe. That was a safe space for their kids. I mean, there's a lot of gun violence in the neighborhood around Ketchum. And parents told me that this was a place they liked sending their kid that they felt good. They felt safe sending their kid there. But since Ketchum reopened in February, the school has had to figure out how to rebuild as this community resource, as Perry told producer Ariel Plotnick. Once students were able to come back to the physical school campus in February, what happened? Did that solve some of these challenges of virtual learning? This is a community that is a low-income community of color. I mean, 97% of the students are Black, 3% are Hispanic. And these are communities across the country that have been hit hardest by COVID. So when schools opened, a lot of these families didn't want to go back. They didn't trust the city to prepare the buildings as they said they would. And they also just didn't feel like it was time. So when Ketchum opened, there's 54 third graders Only six showed up that first day. This third grade classroom in Ketchum was a combination of those six kids in the physical classroom and the rest still learning from home virtually. This new challenge of having some kids in the classroom and some at home was pretty disruptive for families. The first thing that was very noticeable was that attendance was really low. 
And a lot of it was because a lot of these families, most of them lost their routines for a full year and getting back to school wasn't so easy. I mean, there were many parents that worked during the day, so they couldn't actually take their kids to school or they had other siblings at home that weren't offered in-person slots at whatever school they went to. So they couldn't get all their kids logged on at the same time and then take a child to class. A lot of the kids that were there, I noticed, um, they slept through the class a lot. They were just, you know, in pretty deep sleeps. And it's not totally abnormal to have sleepy kids in classrooms sleeping, but this was beyond what had happened in typical school years. Kids had lost their routines. They weren't used to going to bed on time to get wake up early to go to school. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the teacher in charge of these third graders. So... Let me just say these third graders at Ketchum, these 54 third graders, they had an exceptional teacher in Miss Abu Bakri, who they call Miss A. I am Sadia Abu Bakri. I am the third grade literacy teacher here at Ketchum. I have been here for four years. She teaches reading and language arts. I got into teaching um, by accident. I joined Teach for America as like community service. Ended up teaching in the Mississippi Delta, loved it. And yeah, turned into my career. This is my 10th year teaching. So Miss A, as all the students and people at Ketchum call her, she was the one really in person with them in February. She's also a teacher that just goes above and beyond to make sure her kids are getting what they need. There were two, at least two kids at any given time whose parents wanted them in the school building but couldn't get them. Miss A picked them up herself. One of my students had other siblings who weren't afforded seats in in school. So mom was like, hey, it's actually going to be hard for me to get this one student in class. So I'm like, okay, the goal is to get Zanala in class. So sure, I'll come and get her. It was the only way I could help her and actually like be in control of the variables. So I'll go get her. She started third grade play dates. They had the students back on the school grounds, outside, running on the playground, just so they could see each other, just so she could make contact with them. And these kids were so excited about it. All these kids were telling me they couldn't believe how tall their classmates were. One child told me she felt like it was her birthday. These kids hadn't been socializing that much, a lot of them. So they were just so excited. And Miss A created this space for them so they could get some of those social interactions that are key to being eight and nine years old. How did she feel about, you know, honestly, like providing all these extra services, it seems, you know, picking the kids up, doing the book club, doing the play dates? Like, what, how did she feel about that? Miss A always says this quote, and she said it to me like kind of a million times over the course of the few months that I spent there. And she kind of says it under her breath. And she always goes, I always say, whatever's best for the kids, I'll do. So I went with her to pick up these kids on her morning routine. And there's this child, Zonique, who's always wearing things with mermaids on it. She loves mermaids. Uh, um, And Zonique that day when I was there, Zonique was out there dressed with a backpack on with a mask on her face and was ready for school. And I asked Miss A, you know, what did it feel like to see Zonique to know that she was going in person after she had kind of struggled? This kid had really struggled in virtual learning. And she goes, I was happy. I was excited. I was happy to see that Zonique would be learning today, that she would be actually getting the best opportunity to learn in the best way that she could. 
is this idea of it being like not necessarily like going above and beyond is what I've heard, but it's like it was it was routine for me. So like I got excited about seeing them. Prince Rosemary got excited about seeing them. They would come, they'd be like, Oh, where's Denila? Where's Donique? Or they're right behind me. Cause they always used to like take their time walking to the building. So it became like our like new normal. So in anticipation of the new 2021-2022 school year that's coming up. I'm wondering how Miss A feels about next year. Like, does she think that more kids will be in the classroom, that things will sort of get better? D.C. Mayor Bowser and D.C. Public Schools Chancellor Therby are saying that schools will be open five days a week, and unless students have a medical note, they will be required to be in their seats. There's a lot of questions and uncertainty about the fall because a lot of the parents that I spoke to, they're not vaccinated. I spoke to staff members who are not vaccinated. And that right there puts at least some barriers to getting things back to quote unquote normal. There's real fear around the city, not just Ketchum, that getting these kids back in their routines, it's going to take time. So Miss A has been with these kids since first grade. So she's taught the same kids first, second, and third. And that's been a big help because she knew these families really well. She knew these kids really well. But Miss A is actually going to be leaving the school at the end of the year. I have been with them for a very, very, very long time. I'm getting really emotional. But I've just been with them for a while. So they're a very special group to me. Yeah, because they're like all like my children. So I'm going to miss the 54 rising fourth graders that are going, yeah, to do amazing things here at Ketchum. So there's real questions, too, about how the Ketchum community is going to build itself back up after this this year and losing some key staff members that were the glue to a lot of that helped build this community. After shadowing Miss A's classroom and being at Ketchum for four months, watching this moment where kids were coming back to school after the pandemic, what do you feel is sort of like the future of education for these kids, the teachers, the parents at Ketchum? I mean, it's really hard to look at what happened that this last year in Ketchum and feel like the kids were all right this year. Even with this amazing teacher in this school, these kids really struggled and a lot of them did suffer. And we don't know what the long-term impact is. Yes, kids are resilient, but this year was brutal. There's no way around that. And a lot of students, a lot of kids, they suffered. And, you know, it's on these communities, it's on our city, it's on our country to make sure that they stand a chance to make up what they lost, both socially, emotionally, and academically. Perry Stein covers D.C. education for The Post. Ariel Plotnick produced this story. The teacher in this story, Miss A, took a new job in the D.C. public school system as a literacy instruction coach. When school starts again in just a few weeks, D.C. public schools will require all students and staff to wear masks while on school property. D.C. officials are also rushing to get eligible students vaccinated, but vaccination rates among students ages 12 to 17 are still low. We'll be right back. 
now one more thing about corporate speak and how it's evolving during the pandemic. Tatum Hunter reported on these strange words and phrases that we only seem to use in work contexts, like circle back or touch base. You're not entirely sure what they mean, or they're a way to say something that could be said much more simply. For example, somebody at work might ask for a go-forward plan where just the word plan would suffice, or somebody in a work email might ask you to utilize something when they could have said use. Corporate speak seems to be getting more rampant. (laughs) Since the pandemic forced a lot of us to do our jobs at home, we have extra layers in our communication, like between ourselves and our coworkers. So a conversation that I used to have in person, now I might be having over Slack or Zoom or another virtual work tool. So those extra layers of separation between myself and my colleagues might make me more likely to fall back on language that is vague or impersonal for a few reasons. One is that I feel less connected to my coworkers in the first place. So, you know, telling someone that I'll circle back later might feel a lot better than saying, hey, I dropped the ball on this. Here's when you can expect updated information from me or something like that. Uh, And then another reason we might be using corporate speak more is that we feel really off kilter because of remote work. Um, You know, this isn't normal remote work where people are opting for it and, you know, negotiating about it with their employers. For many of us, you know, this was something that came out of a very scary global pandemic. So having coworkers and bosses peer into our homes and living rooms might make a lot of us kind of uncertain as to what vibe we're giving off. (laughs) Do we look professional? Do we look unprofessional? And kind of spouting these corporatisms could be a way for us to kind of regain our footing and feel like we are showing up like a professional at work. Tatum found in her reporting that there are real risks to corporate speak. It can be confusing and it can make people feel excluded if they don't get the lingo. There are ways to combat this. If corporate speak really rubs you the wrong way, you can stop. One expert that I talked with suggested that as opposed to trying to get your entire organization uh, to change the way that they speak, just start with yourself. One thing she suggested is to kind of think about your breath in moments that are tense or scary instead of posturing and trying to sound more authoritative than you might feel in that moment. Another thing she suggested is to think about, like, what's the objective? What's the shared goal you have with that person that you're speaking to? And then use words that speak to that goal and get you there most clearly and quickly and genuinely, um, which makes you less likely to kind of waste people's time telling them to operationalize something. Tatum Hunter is a tech reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Jordan Murray Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Muhammad. 
You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.